These are the oldest stories, online at oldeststories.net. Upon his deathbed, the great king Hattushili I proclaimed, Now, Mershili is my son. You must recognize him. You must install him. Truly, much courage is given to him by the gods. The gods will only install a lion in place of a lion. And when rebellion stirs up again, all assembled here must be helpers for my son. Technically, Mershili was the grandson of the dying king, but in the elevation to son was implied both an adoption and a statement of the royal heir. When no other had been loyal, Mershili had listened to the king in life and was being rewarded for it with a little more advice. Hattushili urges him that, If you keep the word of your father, you will eat bread and drink water. When the vigor of youth is in your heart, then eat two or three times a day and be attentive. But when old age is in your heart, then get drunk and cast away the word of your father. Truly, the final testament of the king really does seem in places to be exactly what it claims to be, a faithful, if sometimes rambling, transcription of the man's dying words. Indeed, he urges Mershili repeatedly to drink bread and eat water, indicating that he should eschew alcohols and more luxurious meals, for a temperate and healthy king will raise a mighty kingdom. He urges all who would protect the new king to avoid division and factionalism, and for Mershili to be decisive when necessary and merciful when possible. And then, in the middle of a ramble about factionalism, he appears to interrupt himself and exclaim, Oh, son, what's in your heart? Do it! Almost certainly, the dying man knew of Mershili's ambitions, or had planted them in the boy himself. He then turned to his primary wife, and in what may have been his final words on the earth, exclaimed, Do not reject me! Don't! Keep consulting those behind me, and I will reveal my word to you. Wash me well, hold me at your breast, and at your breast protect me from the earth. And with this, the builder of the Hittite Empire passed to his gods, and the young Mershili ascended to the throne of the great king. And it seems young was the operative word, likely still an adolescent, since in his testament, Hattushili had prohibited him from going out on campaign for his first three years, until he had come fully of age. During this time, he appears to have either had a regent or a tutor by the name of Pimpira. Some of Pimpira's advice included telling the young king that he should give bread to the one who's hungry, give clothing to the naked, bring those distressed by the cold into the heat. But such is the poor state of documentation surrounding Mershili's reign that we can't be completely sure that Pimpira existed, or was part of his court, or was alive during the correct century. Similarly, we may have a text from his education, 
either as a prince or a young king, in which a handful of situations from his adoptive father's court were highlighted for the youth's edification. Commonly called the Palace Chronicle, it is most commonly accepted as being directed towards young Murshili, but there is so much that's unclear that it could well have been from a young Hattishili, or even from Anita, a century or two earlier, looking back to his father's court. Still, it's the best look we have as to what the young Murshili may have been taught in his formative years, and so well worth looking at. It's a difficult text. It's structured into episodes of a few sentences describing an occurrence, typically a transgression, and the outcome for the transgressor. For an example of both the structure and the oddity, there is, Mr. Papa was a certain temple official. In the city of Tarokima, he sold off the bread and beer meant for the soldiers. They caught Mr. Papa and poured salt into a mug of beer and forced him to drink it. Then they took a clay pot and smashed it on his head as punishment. Later, he was caught selling the soldiers while he liquor, so they smashed another clay pot on his head. As we'll discuss at some point, the Hittites had a law code that took a great deal of inspiration from Mesopotamian codes, including Hammurabi's famous laws. But as we can see here, in practice, crime and punishment seems to have taken on a much more impromptu and, dare I say, creative character at times. Some of the stories are much more difficult to understand without a bit of context and expansion. Mr. Nunu was the man of the city of Herma in the land of Arzawa, in the southwest of the kingdom. He did not bring the silver and gold to the king as was his obligation. Instead, he brought the silver and gold he found to his own house. The man of the city of Huntara exposed him. The former king sent a command and brought Mr. Nunu to him and wrote a message to replace Mr. Nunu with Mr. Sharmashu. But before Mr. Sharmashu left, the golden spearman, a contingent of the king's highest guards, caught Sharmashu and Nunu and tied them both together. The guards then grabbed a relative of Mr. Nunu and butchered the relative before both Nunu and Sharmashu. The next morning, the former king met the bodyguards and pretended to be in shock to see both these dignitaries bound and covered in blood. He demanded an explanation from his guards, at which point the golden spearmen, who had turned their shirts inside out to hide the blood, put their shirts right again to show off the blood. Before the king, and with the message about the consequences of embezzlement clearly delivered, Mr. Sharmashu began to cry that he had not even yet had the chance to go to Arzawa. He'd never even seen Arzawa. And the king said, Go. This has come straight from the heart. Though whether he meant the message had come from the king's heart or the blood had come from the victim's heart is unclear. The intended meaning either way is unquestionable. Not all deal with justice, however. In a passage too convoluted to quote directly, a fellow named Ishpadashinara was a potter who was elevated to the rank of administrator of a city. Now remember, we say the word city 
because the Hittites really only had one word for urban agglomerations, but if the potter is becoming the man in charge, this may well be a village consisting of just a handful of towns. Either way, he gets into an argument with another city lord. The former king sided with Ishpadashinara and made him into a trainer of chariots, where he was criticized by the chariot leaders for running too many drills at night. However, Ishpadashinara proved that he had turned the charioteers into masters of their weapons. It concludes with an anecdote from his training regimen that the charioteers would shoot arrows as a demonstration before the king himself, and those who hit the mark while in a moving chariot, no small feat, would be given a cup of wine, while those who missed would be given a bitter cup, possibly a cup full of urine, and made to run the parade ground naked. All in all, it gives us an image of a people who think like we do in many ways, and still manage to come to some very divergent conclusions compared to what we would think right today. And regardless of whether this really was written by or for young King Mershili, he was by all accounts a man of his time, and this gives us an insight into his and most mainstream Hittites' way of thinking. Which is good, because when I say we don't have very much from Mershili, I mean it. Even though I'm sort of selling him here in the episode title as a pivotal figure, most dedicated histories can't fill more than a page on him. The texts that reference him total less than a dozen lines, and almost all his accomplishments during his 30-year reign are completely unknown. We know basically two things about him for sure, his two great campaigns and his death. But these two are more than enough to immortalize him. His first few years, maybe under Regent Pimpira, and maybe a few years after that, needed to be spent reconsolidating power after the tumultuous death of his grandfather, maybe disciplining parties who hadn't liked his grandfather's deathbed edict, and maybe bringing wayward vassals back to closer alignment with Hattusha. All vassalage was done in service to individual kings, not to the Hittite state itself, and so Mershili would needed to have made contact with all surviving vassals to renew their oaths. But once he was confident he ruled over a unified kingdom, perhaps just as soon as he was old enough needing to prove himself, needing to get vengeance for his predecessor, and facing the same strategic concerns Hattushili had, he assembled his first army in the spring, sometime around 1615 BCE. When we discussed Hattushili's campaigns, we looked at who would be called up, but we didn't have too much to say about how they were equipped and employed. In many ways, it wasn't too different from the armies of Babylon at around the same time. A fighting man might carry spear, axe, and small shield, probably a bow as well, though in Anatolia the axe was more often exchanged for a slightly curved sword in a style probably borrowed from the Phoenicians to the south, though made into a distinctive Hittite pattern with the addition of a crescent shape at the end of the pommel. Armor was extremely light. The Babylonian metal helmets are exchanged for leather caps over long flowing hair and it's debated whether the average footman wore a light cloth armor vest or went completely shirtless into battle. 
The shield, as well, was of very light wood and leather construction, probably meant to be discarded after any battle where it saw use. Interestingly, this panoply was fairly consistent from Kingsguard to Conscript, and while it's suspected that professional soldiers may have had higher grade equipment, the visual gap between the different classes in the army was likely quite small. One key difference from their neighbors, that was key in many ways to the Hittite's success in open warfare, was that each individual soldier was expected to be light, fast, and able to play many different roles in different situations. In the rugged terrain of Anatolia, spears were discarded, or at least left in camp, in favor of short sword and shield, or axe and shield. The almost completely unarmored Hittite battle group would hide some or all of their forces in parts of the terrain, and fall upon the enemy in a hard shock assault at extremely close range, breaking the enemy's spirit quickly for maximum war captives with minimal losses. In the flat deserts and plains of Syria, Phoenicia, and Mesopotamia, there was less opportunity for surprise attacks, though these were employed where possible, but here the warriors covered themselves head to toe in long flowing robes for protection from the sun, and took up spears instead of swords. They fought on open plains in spear blocks, acting here as the anvil instead of the hammer. That hammer, and the thing the Hittites themselves credited much of their success to, was the Hittite chariot. Lighter and far more maneuverable than both Egyptian and Mesopotamian chariots, Hittite chariotry will dominate the Late Bronze Age and is a critical factor in nearly every major Hittite battle that we have decent records for. Under Hattusili and Mershili, Horses are still very new to Anatolia, introduced probably by the Hurrians, and Hittite chariotry could well have been pioneered under Hattusili himself, explaining at least in part his tremendous success in war. Early on, Hittite chariots appear to generally follow the same patterns as Egyptian ones. Two solid wheels, two riders, two strong horses. But overall, the construction appears to have been lighter, with the solid wheels being replaced at some point by spoked wheels with six thick spokes, which makes them lighter and more maneuverable, with the wheels being moved from the back of the cart to the middle, allowing for sturdier construction, though this last is mostly a reputation and inference since no actual Hittite chariots survive to this day. It is speculated and much debated that the Hittite chariots were exceptional in being able to charge into infantry, while chariots in Egypt and Mesopotamia were primarily skirmishing platforms, which is an exciting enough image that I hope it turns out to be true. However, while arguments can and indeed have been made as to the superiority of various pieces of kit, Hittite military superiority seems to have rested principally on two things, training and flexibility. While not all of the army would have been regularly trained, there was definitely a full-time elite corps consisting of all the charioteers and the elite among the foot soldiers. These men would spend winters in Hattusha, undergoing a wide variety of military drills and undertaking related duties during peacetime. Additionally, they would be part of every campaign, big and small, 
and there appears to have been a campaign at least every other year, if not every single year, under the active Great Kings. Meaning, the professionals of the Hittite Empire would have been a grizzled force of veterans with few equals in the ancient Near East. Learning to stay in condition, in formation, and alert to the environment has been crucial for warriors throughout human history. While it's perhaps hard to measure precisely the effect of training and experience, especially from 3,500 years away, the results speak for themselves. The other key was flexibility, which itself relied on the extensively trained perception of the commanders and physical condition of the warriors. Just the ability to change kit based on expected terrain, the same warriors being equally adept at shirtless axe fighting among the rugged Anatolian hills and phalanx spear formations among the flat plains of Syria, is probably the first time in human history that we see this level of strategic awareness, at least on a large enough scale to be recorded. The Hittites loved nothing so much as an ambush, and any time they could, some or all of their army would be concealed. This often goaded the enemy into attacking well-defended positions, since they would appear undermanned, only to be caught in a flank by a surrounding group of infantry or the devastating chariot charges that dominated the ancient battlefield. It isn't completely clear how much of this classic Hittite army is present here in Mershili's reign. Much of the evidence comes from a bit later, but it certainly appears that the general template was in place by now, and the details seem to have changed remarkably little over the next 500 years. And so, at the head of an army of thousands of professional soldiers, trained militia, civilian levies, and by now also auxiliaries from vassal kingdoms, Mershili sets out to rewrite the balance of power in the Near East. Where does he go? Where does he fight? How long does it take? We know nothing at all from this campaign, except that he finally beat back Yamhad enough to approach the ancient and prosperous city of Aleppo, capital of the Yamhad kingdom for the last 400 years, and defeat it. The city was sacked and looted ungently, though not destroyed completely, since of course it still stands today and, and will again be a minor player in our story in a century or two. But with this, the name of Yamhad, the kingdom that once held the western portion of the Mesopotamian power balance, will never again appear. A venerable dynasty is destroyed and a power vacuum is left in its wake. Some amount of diplomacy occurred here to tie the local kings to Hattusha, but even in the moment it doesn't appear that these were pursued too intently, and later events would conspire to undermine whatever efforts were made. Still, Syria was now completely empty of challengers to Hittite dominance. There is some amount of contention with the various Hurrian cities, but this is scattered and may not have been substantial just yet or it may have been substantial and just not written down. Either way, Mershili is riding high. He is ready for his crowning achievement. The story I'm about to tell you is one of many possible stories. Details are incredibly scarce, and while no one's in doubt of the outcome, it's terribly difficult to tell just how it was accomplished. It begins shortly after the destruction of Aleppo. Though Mershili, like his grandfather, was mostly concerned with hauling plunder back from conquered cities, 
The power vacuum left by the loss of a mighty kingdom left many former Yamhad vassals casting about to look for new alliances to protect themselves in a chaotic time, as well as to perhaps gang up on smaller neighbors and rip them apart, making the time ever more chaotic. It was with the latter motivation that the kingdom of Hana may have approached the great king of Hattusha. Hana was something of a rump state, the northern portion of what had once been the kingdom of Mari until conflict with Babylon had finally seen the end of that city, and it ruled along a tributary of the northern Euphrates. Hana had come under the rule of a Kassite dynasty. You may remember them as the semi-nomads who brought the horse to Babylonia and had partly integrated into Babylonian society. This was a branch of those people who hadn't yet entered Babylonian territory. Meanwhile, the Babylonian Empire was collapsing. We covered this from the other side in the episode Days of Quiet Prosperity, but all of a sudden, after decades of relative peace, Babylon appears to have been unable to stop its outlying cities from being taken. Elamites, Hurrians, and Sealand are the main suspects, and it's possible that all three may have been involved, though whether this was coordinated or opportunistic is unclear. At the same time, the Kassites, who had taken an outsized role in the old empire's defense, were rising in rebellion, also for reasons that are unclear. But for quite a long time, the empire had been lost, but the city of Babylon, and perhaps a small heartland, remained under the rule of the final king of Hammurabi's dynasty, the unlucky Samsudatana. Perhaps the rebellious Kassites reached out to their cousins in Hana, and the kingdom of Hana reached out to Mershili, fresh off his victory in Aleppo. That would help to explain some aspects of the aftermath, though the involvement of the Hanaeans at all is uncertain and based on a single controversial word in a document written centuries later. But it wouldn't be out of character for the great king to work with smaller kingdoms as allies and vassals, and whatever the case, it's likely that Mershili had his eye on Babylon anyway. If a king proves his legitimacy by military conquest, then surely it was necessary for Mershili to surpass his grandfather, who had already, at least in official propaganda, surpassed Sargon the Great. While there is plenty to discuss about the merits and consequences of the sack of Babylon, the main fact of the matter is that Mershili went to Babylon for glory and plunder and to prove that he could. Anything else was incidental. And so it was, in the spring of 1595 BCE, that Mershili again called up the armies of the Hittite Empire, mustering the by now very experienced professionals, the well-trained militias, the civilian levies, and the allied contingents. Perhaps the sack of Aleppo had afforded him enough wealth by now to hire mercenaries, though he may not have needed them. This is the height of the old kingdom's military might, and it's quite likely that no one on the planet could have mustered an army in this particular year that could have contested with the force that marched to the old lands of Sumer and Akkad. For 800 kilometers they trekked, supply carts in tow for miles behind the main force. The men would be equipped with their desert gear, the long white gowns that covered from neck to ankle conical leather caps, and long hair protecting the head and neck from the brutal sun, a short spear of maybe five feet in length in hand, and maybe, though this is disputed, 
a small wood and leather shield, just slightly smaller than torso-sized. The chariots were disassembled in the carts, not being built for the rigors of a long travel, and those carts were pulled by donkeys to keep the chariot horses rested. If a foreigner, or someone from our time, came to look at the column, it may have been difficult to pick out the king and the elite warriors from among the similarly clad men-at-arms. This didn't mark a spirit of equality, just a recognition that, for the Hittites, light and plain armor was best for their way of war. Finally, the Hittites arrived in Babylon and destroyed the city. The lack of detail here might make us think that this was a quick and easy affair, but even with the decline of the empire, the walls of Babylon were still high, the population was large, the armories were well stocked, and the soldiers were veterans of numerous conflicts. The Hittites had no love for protracted sieges, and so it was almost certainly furious assault after furious assault, with every trick they could imagine and a substantial cost in lives. But finally, the mighty walls were breached, the people enslaved, their belongings heaped up into the now nearly empty supply carts, and the city burned to the ground. We aren't sure what happened to the king, the final heir of Hammurabi's dynasty, but he either died fighting or died as a captive some time after. The great god Marduk, patron of Babylon, who had finally failed in his protection of the mighty city, allowed himself to be carried out of the Asagula temple to a new home. For some 500 miles, men, women, and children were forced marched across open desert, hauling their own possessions like beasts of burden for their new owners. The Hittites were not gentle, and the crossing would have weeded out the undesirable old, sick, and weak slaves. But neither did they consider themselves needlessly cruel. Though this long baggage train would have been an incredibly tempting target for raiders, they still proceeded at a much slower pace and provided grain and water for the transportees. After all, it was no good taking slaves if you weren't going to keep them alive, even though this likely stretched out the return journey to a full two months, plus a possible stop in the kingdom of Hana on the upper Euphrates. When they arrived at Hattusha, there would have been a tremendous amount of celebration. The great king had just accomplished something almost unthinkable, an expedition across the known world to overcome the ancient center of civilization. His miles-long plunder train would speak for itself, though no doubt the king and his priests spoke a lot as well to make sure no one missed the point. The slaves would be divided up according to skills, with the farmers and herdsmen likely being assigned to lands where they could live relatively well, accumulate private wealth, and eventually escape their status a few generations down the line. The craftsmen would be collected into small factories, and the unskilled laborers would likely find less happy fates. The attractive women would be sold off as concubines for the wealthy, while the rest of the women would either join their slave husbands in farm and pasture, or spend their days in small factories for textiles, potteries, and the like. The Hittites don't show evidence for the sort of large-scale factory-style production that pops up from time to time in Mesopotamia, but they also had less population surplus, so it likely existed just in smaller scale that's harder to spot in the archaeological record. And then, a few years later, 
the man who destroyed the two great powers of the Middle Bronze Age, was assassinated by his sister's husband. The Empire was plunged into generations of infighting, and whatever the great king had planned to come next for his kingdom died with him. But there will be time to look at the kings of murder later. Anyone can see that Mershili's two campaigns, particularly the march to Babylon, were decently impressive feats. But it takes a bit more prodding to see how he's shaping the world order. Mershili isn't a larger-than-life figure like Sargon or Alexander or Genghis Khan imposing their will on the world through genius and ambition. But he was the right man at the right time competent enough to master a mighty army and see the opportunity, but really there's a large element of luck involved that allowed him to be the fulcrum on which great levers were moved. Beginning with Babylon, there is no doubt that the city was in decline even without Mershili's involvement. The creeping salinization of fields worked for centuries may have been taking its toll. Climate shifts, possibly as a result of the Santorini eruption in the Mediterranean, may have worsened the harvest, and the attack of multiple mysterious enemies had definitely laid low the great power. This is, after all, a large part of the reason Mershili decided to attack, because he saw this opportunity. It's hard to imagine him risking the 800-kilometer journey to go up against Babylon in its full might, though as we transition to the Late Bronze Age, we are going to start seeing that sort of epic campaign undertaken from time to time. But at the same time, great powers have ebbed before. This was not the first time Babylon had been reduced to its capital city, with enemies on every front. We saw similar stories in the Akkadian Empire, and even among the Hittites. Of course, there's an element of counterfactual here that's impossible to answer. With another decade, would Samsudatana or some successor have managed some reversal? Would they have just slowly succumbed to the gathered forces? Would they have managed to hang on as a rump state for a century longer? All of these have precedent elsewhere in history. But ultimately, what matters is what actually happened. Into the vacuum left by Mershili's raid stepped nothing. Or at least, not right away. Probably the climate problems that contributed to the decline were still in effect in the region, but also likely none of the smaller competitors actually had the strength to assert their power over the region. Certain Kassite groups will eventually manage to assert their control over the city itself, probably inhabiting the ruins to at least some extent pretty soon after the sack but it will be a long time before they manage to restore Babylon to some semblance of its former glory. In the north, we looked at how Assyria had been struggling through poverty and internal conflict, and at this point, it likely looks little different from dozens of other independent city-states on the Tigris, none of which have the power to do much more than raid each other. In Syria, things are a bit different. The Hittites have a network of vassals in the north, and with the fall of Aleppo, there's probably a slight expansion here, even after the death of Mershili. However, vassalage was not given to the Hittite state, but to individual rulers, and with the assassination, it's likely that much of Syria broke free, and here too, were reduced to individual city-states and tiny kingdoms. Into this Near East power vacuum, four powers will emerge, one on each corner. 
I'll be devoting an entire episode just to outlining this. But the big winners here are the Mitanni, a Hurrian group that arises from the northeast and swoops in to terrify all the independent states. From the southwest at around the same time, Egypt will finally emerge into our story, coming out of the chaos of the Hyksos invasion stronger than ever and march long distances as the great challengers of the Mitanni. The Hittites in the northwest are in for a century or more of internal chaos, and while they won't be collapsing completely like under Anita, Labarna, and Hattushili, they will be receding for just long enough to allow these new players space to stretch their legs. And finally, everyone's favorite metropolis will rise once again as Babylon under the Kassites becomes the power of the southeast. This is the shape of the Late Bronze Age. While there will be twists and turns, since what story is complete without exciting battles and precipitous falls, the notion of a club of great powers dominating the region and competing on a level playing field will come to define the era. It's going to be pretty good, and I'm excited for these stories. And all of it comes about because Mershili, in his ambition to surpass his grandfather, wiped the slate clean, just as some great powers were rising. Plus the fact that he was assassinated, preventing the Hittites from taking full advantage of the power vacuum and building their own region-wide empire. I've teased two stories now, the dynastic struggles in Hattusha and the great power politics of the late Bronze Age, and we'll definitely be getting there. But next week, I want to pause again in our story and look away from the kings who dominate our narrative. For the average Anatolian living under Hittite rule, life looked in many ways different from his contemporaries in Mesopotamia, who we looked at in the Hammurabi series. I want to spend some time in the towns and villages that dot the Anatolian hills and valleys. So join us next time for the peaceful, though strenuous, life of the craftsmen and farmers of the Hittite Empire. Thank you for listening.